Hello and welcome to Across the States. I'm Matt Fisher and joining us today are Brooklyn Roberts, Alex, Senior Director of Health and Human Services Task Force, Michael Cannon, Director of Policy Health Studies at the Cato Institute, and Naomi Lopez, Director of Healthcare Policy at the Goldwater Institute. All here to discuss telehealth and its role in the future of healthcare in America. Brooklyn, Michael, Naomi, welcome to Across the States. How are y'all doing? Great. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So let's kick things off here. I'm going to go first to you, Brooklyn. As Senior Director of Health and Human Services Task Force, you work with lawmakers on formulating innovative new strategies based on free market principles for improving healthcare in the United States. Now, many listening right now have likely had to use telehealth services in the last year. It's more crucial than ever before, but to lay the groundwork for our conversation today, could you tell us what telehealth is and what are the benefits we are seeing for insurers, physicians, and patients? Well, very broadly, it's using technology to get or receive healthcare services and our information. That can mean having a phone consultation with your doctor or meeting with your doctor via Zoom. It can also be doctors sending data and information electronically to other doctors. For example, if your doctor affords an x-ray to a radiologist to review, it can also be collecting information from your phone or other device and sending to your doctor electronically, or even doctors who monitor patients from the hospital, you know, from their electronic devices. That's really interesting. So from here on in the conversation, I'm going to hand you the reins so you can ask Michael and Naomi some more questions. So I'm handing the mic over to you. Well, with the increased use of of telehealth due to COVID, I know a lot of our lawmakers are struggling with the ways to allow access to healthcare across state lines. Michael, what are are you seeing in, in ways to handle that challenge? If there are silver linings to the pandemic, one of them is that at the very early stages in this crisis, states began to suspend a lot of the restrictions that have prevented telehealth and related restrictions that have blocked access to care in other ways, restrictions that states impose on healthcare providers through the laws that license, that set up the regime of occupational licensing for healthcare providers. So if you want to be a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a dentist, a dental therapist, et cetera, you have to get a license from the state in order to practice in that state. The state tells you what kind of education you need, what kind of services you can provide. And then if you want to practice in that state, you have to do it under the terms of that license. And if you want to practice in another state, well, then you have to get permission from that state's government. And that prevents a lot of people from moving to other states to practice there. It also prevents people from providing these telehealth services across state lines. So at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of states recognize that these restrictions are blocking access to care for people, and they suspended a lot of them. Most states said, as long as you've got a license from another state, regardless of what our laws say right now, as long as you've got a valid license from another state, you can provide telehealth services to people in our state. This was incredibly important because in hotspots like New York early on in the pandemic, you had a lot of physicians who were pitching in to deal with that crisis, and then a lot of unmet need among other patients who are afraid to go see their doctor in person, or maybe their physician wasn't available, they were then able to receive telehealth services from clinicians who are out of state. You also had New York and other states suspend their restrictions on out-of-state licensed practitioners actually coming into their state in order to help them deal with the pandemic. 
So the silver lining here is first, that state officials of both parties recognize that these laws restrict access to care. We now have politicians, Republicans and Democrats on record acknowledging that these laws restrict access to care. They rightly suspended them for the duration of this public health emergency. And hopefully now we have an opportunity to make those suspensions permanent and therefore permanently expand access to care even after this this public health crisis ends to help people deal with the private health crises that happen in this country every day. Naomi, I know that you're working on a a telehealth bill in Arizona. What are you guys looking at? How are you dealing with this? Well, I'm really enthusiastic to share the Arizona House Bill 2454. It's sponsored by Representative Regina Cobb, who's a dentist, which would allow registered healthcare providers who are in good standing in other states to provide services to Arizonans via telehealth. And this is not just about patient convenience. It certainly does provide patient convenience. But the really important part of this type of reform is that it can set a very powerful precedent that can be emulated in states across the country and that will really supercharge healthcare reform around the country. If lawmakers recall a couple of years ago, Arizona passed a universal occupational licensing reform, which basically allowed people moving into the state to very easily and simply register to continue practicing their profession as long as they were in good standing. This is a similar approach in that a healthcare provider in another state who's registered with the state of Arizona and is in good standing and meets a couple of other requirements can provide services. We know that during the pandemic, there were about 41 states plus federal programs that took steps to make telehealth more readily available during the pandemic. These modified requirements included things like allowing out-of-state physicians and other providers to provide these telehealth services, eliminating the requirement for a pre-existing provider-patient relationship before providing telehealth services, and allowing for both audio and or video telehealth options. The Arizona reform proposal builds on this important proof of concept success that we saw around the country and really supercharges healthcare access by using the power of technology and medical expertise in ways that have not yet been fully realized and in some cases not even imagined. And we're going to see, I think, a lot of transformations occur in rural care, in the way hospitals are organized and deliver care, and insurance policies. I know some states are are looking at healthcare compacts and reciprocity agreements similar to what, you know, Maryland, D.C. and Virginia have. Those seem like, you know, there are a lot of red tape and universal recognition seems like it's the easiest and, and best way to go. What else are you seeing in terms of policy reform that's on the table with telehealth due to COVID? Well, this is really the one, I think, in Arizona that's front and center. As I mentioned before, we saw a variety of different approaches to allowing telehealth. But like I mentioned, and as you as you pointed out, Brooklyn, that the idea of automatic universal reciprocity is a really important concept that really leapfrogs over a lot of the bureaucracy and red tape that we see in these licensure compacts. These licensure compacts have been around for well over a decade in many states, And what we do know is that they're very cumbersome, they're expensive, they're time-consuming, and they really, you know, fall short of this ideal that 
you know, if you have someone who is educated and trained to provide a service, they should be allowed to provide that service. So this telehealth reform in Arizona, I think, should be front and center as a model for other states to follow. You know, we have to realize that there are no silver bullets to the many issues and problems that we face in the healthcare system and delivery in particular, but this particular reform can be absolutely transformative in the way that we deliver healthcare services, in the way that people can access care where they need it and when they need it, and in a way that also really pushes for innovative payment models that really have really lagged behind where we should be in terms of technological capability and transparency. I would agree with Naomi. You know, my preference for dealing with these sorts of issues is to eliminate clinician licensing entirely, because even though the stated purpose of clinician licensing is to protect patients, I think it has had the opposite effect. It's had the opposite effect by increasing the cost of medical care, making medical care less accessible in ways that we have discussed and other ways we haven't. It has also, as Naomi said, blocked all manner of innovation in healthcare, including telehealth, but also in other ways of organizing and financing and delivering healthcare that could be delivering on lots of dimensions of quality where our healthcare sector is so weak. That would be a heavy lift right now to eliminate clinician licensing. But there are lots of alternatives. One of them, and I again agree with Naomi, is the idea of a compact. Those have proved not to be adequate to the task the compacts that exist right now. Reciprocity is another one where each state recognizes the, uh, they agree to recognize each other's licenses. I would argue that universal recognition is superior to reciprocity because then what the state is doing, and Arizona does this, is it's saying we're we're not going to wait for another state to do the right thing before we give our residents access, broader access to healthcare and more innovative services. And even within those recognition laws, you can still have lots of restrictions. You you might have a residency requirement in there, or you might require them, the licensees, the professionals, the state might require them to pay unnecessary fees or, or take unnecessary tests that are duplicative of what their state did. And you want to avoid those measures as much as possible so that each state ends up recognizing any license issued by any other state. So as soon as you get that license from another state, you should be able to practice hopefully anywhere in the United States without these sorts of restrictions inhibiting patient access. You know, as we begin to transition out of the lockdowns, I know there's going to be, a, you know, discussion in state houses about improving access to healthcare and, and reducing costs. What can lawmakers do to help kind of nourish and, and grow the field of healthcare technology and, and telehealth as we kind of shift gears, hopefully to a post-COVID world? Well, one temptation that lawmakers are going to face is there will be people who come to them and say, we have this wonderful idea for expanding access to care, for expanding telehealth services and innovation in healthcare. All it requires is for you to spend more taxpayer dollars on telehealth. We've seen that at the federal level when the Trump administration said that it is removing barriers to telehealth. We've seen these proposals at the state level where people say that they want to remove barriers to telehealth in the Medicaid program. And 
usually what these people are talking about in the context of Medicare or Medicaid is not removing barriers to telehealth, but expanding government, expanding government spending by having the government subsidize now this category of services that it previously did not subsidize. And that includes telehealth. That's what the Trump administration was talking about. That's what these state proposals are talking about is not reducing the government's influence over healthcare, but actually expanding the government's reach by having it subsidize services that it currently does not. I think that's the wrong approach because that gets the government even more heavily invested in, in financing healthcare. It creates new constituencies that are dependent on government spending. It adds rigidity to the area of telehealth so that Telehealth will develop in the direction of what the government subsidizes at the expense of what it doesn't subsidize. And so what the story of telehealth instructs, in my view, is that we should not be looking to government to try to direct the development of this technology. In fact, what we should be doing with regard to the Medicare program or the Medicaid program is removing the government from these sorts of decisions as much as possible. And there are various ways of doing that. But this is, I think, an important distinction that we have to draw when talking to policymakers. And that is that not everything that people say is pro-telehealth is necessarily going to be something that they're going to want to do. If it's removing these sorts of licensing barriers that Naomi and I are talking about, that is a positive step. If it's expanding government by having government subsidize telehealth, that is not a step in the right direction. So I think that right now we are really at an interesting time in the healthcare debate. When I talk to lawmakers across the country, one of the primary concerns today is talking about how they're going to use the state bailout money for COVID, which is probably going to be somewhere in the range of about $350 billion. I think one of the things that we need to be very careful about is to make sure that that is done in a very direct and decisive way. And there might be some ways to help facilitate the use of telemedicine in Medicaid, for example, or in federally qualified health centers. And that pot of money might be, you know, we we can talk all day about the proper role of government, but if that money is coming to states, there are better ways to spend it. And this might be an opportunity to use those funds for a better purpose that really do provide access to patients. Now, when we talk a little bit more, you know, longer range, I think that one of the things we want to keep our eye on are ways to use telehealth in Medicaid and or in moving people to private health for coverage. One of the things that we can absolutely be sure about is that the maintenance of effort requirements that are on states will probably be extended past the end of the pandemic for a period of time. States are going to be in a very difficult position where they're going to have a lot of people on their Medicaid rolls who really shouldn't be on Medicaid as a result of these maintenance of effort requirements. They're going to need to clean up their rolls very quickly, but probably do so in a way that is going to be politically acceptable, politically palatable. And I think that we're going to have opportunities to use telehealth in that process as well in, in moving people back to private coverage over time especially, you know, as you should, very quickly clean up the eligibility on Medicaid because the impact of having so many people on Medicaid who really shouldn't be on it are far-reaching. It's not only on the Medicaid program, but there are other costs that the state is going to have to put the bill for as a result of having these swollen Medicaid rolls. So I think those are probably the longer-term 
things that we need to be looking at and talking about in terms of how telemedicine and telehealth can be part of the solution. And I would also like to just point out, in case people aren't aware, if they haven't had a chance to actually look at House Bill 2454 in Arizona, is that this is a very comprehensive bill that doesn't just cover doctors. It covers healthcare providers. And we know that as a result of COVID, there are mental health needs. And this is part of the answer to that as well. Whether you're talking about private coverage or you're talking about your government programs, particularly Medicaid, this is going to also be an important aspect in the long run of addressing some of these public health needs. Michael, I know you, to kind of wrap things up, I know that you guys do a lot of programming over at Cato and and you do a lot of writing. Do you have anything coming up that our listeners need to know about? Sure. Well, we do have two recent papers that are relevant to this topic. One sort of details all of the changes that states have made when it comes to their licensing laws to expand access to care in response to the pandemic. And we argue that states should make those permanent and go even further to respect patient and provider freedom. And uh, that's a paper that I wrote with Shirley Savorny, our adjunct scholar on COVID-19 in the healthcare workforce. Another one that's relevant to states and even during the, the pandemic is a paper I did with my colleague, Dr. Jeff Singer, who's also a colleague of Naomi's, about eliminating the FDA's power to impose prescription requirements, which have always restricted access to the medications that patients need, but that particularly burden patients during a public health crisis like this one. And there are things that states can do there as well that include allowing pharmacists to prescribe and other non-physician clinicians to prescribe necessary medications that will broaden access to those medications. And I'm going to be talking about some of those issues perhaps at an event next week hosted by uh, the Duke University Law School Federalist Society chapter. We're going to be discussing the role of the FDA in the COVID-19 pandemic. That will be this coming Monday, March 15th at 12.30. And if you follow me on Twitter, then you'll be able to find the Zoom code for that event. My Twitter handle is at MFCanon. That's at M-F-C-A-N-N-O-N. What about you guys, Naomi? Do you have anything coming up that we need to know about? Yes, we actually have two important documents that I think lawmakers across the country are would be interested in. On Tuesday, the Goldwater Institute will be releasing Putting Patients First, Unleashing Innovation in American Healthcare. This is a look at FDA policies, some of which can be addressed at the state level, that are relevant to the COVID-19 crisis, as well as other issues that prevent the right treatment, getting to the right patient at the right time. The second document is the Goldwater Institute's Revitalizing America, a legislative guide to recovering from coronavirus that was released this past summer, where we include recommendations for the economy, education, and healthcare. And you can take a look at the healthcare section where the concept that, you know, the legislation that you now see in Arizona was included in this document. But for our toolkits, for every recommendation we make, we include a synopsis of the issue, additional resources for learning more, and most importantly, model language that lawmakers can use in their reform efforts. Well, thank you, Michael and Naomi. Uh, We really appreciate you guys taking the time to be here with us today. I'll turn it back over to Matthew. Thank you, Brooklyn. And thank you, Michael and Naomi, for joining us today. 
And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to tune in next time to Across the States. I'm Matt Fisher, and we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 